We often hear people say, God knows my heart. And it's true. God does know our hearts. In this passage before us this morning, John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we see an implicit claim about Jesus' deity. Jesus knows our hearts. In verse 25 it says that he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't merely know what was in man because someone told him, or because he read it in the Bible. The way that I know I know what's in man because I read it somewhere. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew directly and independently what was in man because as John chapter 1 and verse 3 has already told us without him was not anything made that was made Jesus knows what is in man by virtue of his status as creator sustainer upholder governor of this universe Surely there is an implicit claim about Jesus' deity here in acknowledging that Jesus knows what is in man. Whatever was said about God in the Old Testament is true of the Word become flesh. For example, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Hear the Word become flesh. Searches hearts and tests minds. First Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. The well-known phrase, Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. So God does know your heart. Jesus knows your heart. But that's not really the comforting idea that so many of its proponents think it is. Most people who say that mean that God will excuse their behavior because He knows that they have good intentions. That's what most people mean when they say, well, God knows my heart. The Scripture tells us, however, that when God looks upon the unregenerate heart, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, what He sees is worthy of condemnation. Just before Jeremiah 17.10, which I read a moment ago, is of course Jeremiah 17.9. The whole passage reads like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. And test the mind. Who can know it? The Lord. The Lord can know it. He does know it. And He sees that it is deceitful. And desperately sick. Apart from the intervention of His grace. The Lord knows that. Jesus knows that. 
This is what's going on in this passage. John chapter 2, 23 to 25. Men with deceitful and sick hearts respond to the signs that Jesus was doing. John chapter 2 and verse 23. And Jesus, the Lord, searches the hearts, tests the minds of these men, and finds them wanting. In other words, Jesus knows that these so-called believers were false believers. As Herman Ritterboss points out, elsewhere in John's Gospel, there is mention of faith that later proved impermanent. Consider, as a clear example, John chapter 8, verse 30 and following. In John chapter 8 and verse 30, we read, As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in Him. So far, so good. But, as we go on, there's this little exchange between Jesus and the Jews who had believed in Him. That's in verse 31. This is who's talking. Jesus and the Jews who believed in Him. Verses 31 to 38 are not incompatible with the Jews having believed in Him savingly, necessarily. But beginning in verse 39, things begin to get pretty hostile between these Jews that believed in Him and Jesus Himself. They answered Him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. Who, wait, who seeks to kill him? Look at verse 31. Jesus is talking with the Jews who had believed in him. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. You understand what they're saying there? By implication, you were born of sexual immorality and you presume to lecture us? Right? In other words, we all know that uh, the Holy Spirit didn't impregnate Mary. That's essentially what they're saying here in this passage. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, But he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And on and on it goes. The point of that is simply to show that elsewhere in John, we read of people who believe, in some sense, to some extent, John speaks of them as believers, and yet, clearly, they're not regenerate people. They're of their father, the devil. They're seeking to kill Jesus. They speak in terms that make us extremely uncomfortable, extremely squeamish. Saying to Jesus implicitly that he was born of sexual immorality. Though we don't read those kinds of things 
about the people at the end of John chapter 2. A similar thing is going on at the end of John chapter 2 as is going on in John 8. There's a false faith, an insincere faith, uh, not saving faith. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that. There is, of course, in John, a belief that involves a genuine heart change. There is such thing as belief that involves a genuine heart change in the Gospel of John. The new birth that we'll talk about as we begin John chapter 3. Next time we're in John's Gospel. There is a belief that corresponds with becoming children of God. As chapter 1 and verse 12 has said. Children born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There obviously is a kind of belief that's accompanied by heart change. Kind of belief that's accompanied by the new birth. Kind of belief that comes from God, that makes us children of God. And then there is a belief, as we've seen in John chapter 8, that's a very clear example. There is a belief in John that is superficially motivated. There's a kind of belief in John's gospel that doesn't involve heart change, apparently. A kind of belief in Jesus that is compatible with seeking to kill Jesus. A kind of belief in Jesus that is compatible with mocking Jesus' mom as being a sexually immoral woman. There's a kind of belief in John's gospel that doesn't involve heart change, but is rather an issue of impulse or emotionalism or convenience or tradition or whatever else. There are superficial reasons for, in some sense, believing in Jesus, but nothing has changed inside. John chapter 12 42 and 43 is another example of this. Many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In that passage, there's an admiration of Jesus. Even it seems an intellectual recognition of his identity. Yet no heart change. The heart is not reoriented toward Christ, but remains oriented towards its original guiding impulses. They love the glory that comes from man before they met Jesus, and they still love the glory that comes from man. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue before they met Jesus, and they still don't want to be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid of the Pharisees before they met Jesus, and they're still afraid of the Pharisees. See, nothing's changed. Something like that is what's happening in this passage before us today, at the end of John chapter 2. We read, many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John chapter 2 and verse 23. There seems to be some level of recognition of Jesus' identity. Even an admiration, approval, 
and some level of confidence in Jesus. But something is lacking in the heart. And so Jesus withholds his confidence in them. But Jesus on his part, verse 24 tells us, did not entrust himself to them. What does it mean that he didn't entrust himself to them? Obviously, there's some kind of reservation. He didn't give himself to them, perhaps in the way that he gives himself to true believers. He didn't allow himself to be affected or swayed by them or their plans for him. We read elsewhere in the Gospels that sometimes they wanted to come and make him king by force. But Jesus withdrew. He didn't entrust himself to them. Something like this is going on here. There's this hesitation, this reservation. And why? Not in this case because the timing wasn't right. But in this case because it says he knew what was in them. Because he knew their hearts. Because he knew, evidently, that their belief was not as a result of heart change, but was superficially motivated in some way, as those in John 8, John 12, and elsewhere in John's Gospel were. So what we find here is that these people profess to believe in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. That English word, entrust, is translated from the same Greek word, believed, which is used in verse 23. Jesus didn't believe in those who believed in Him. Jesus knew that these so-called believers then were false believers. Because Jesus knows when faith isn't genuine. Jesus knows when faith isn't genuine. As the parable of the sower in Luke 8 verses and following teach us not all who demonstrate some response to the gospel will be saved I think most of us if not all of us are familiar with that parable someone goes out to sow seed he scatters it some of the seed gets taken up by the birds some of the seed doesn't have any root and so it grows a little bit and then withers in the heat of the day some of it gets choked out by thorns and some of it produces good fruit do you realize that in three of those four seeds there is some response to the gospel three of those four soils receive the seed to some extent in some way and yet the clear teaching the clear 
implication of Jesus' teaching about what that means is that only the fourth soil is good. Not all who demonstrate some response to the gospel will be saved. As Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There is such a thing as making a response to Jesus, a response to the gospel, which does not stem from a changed heart. The soil is not good. The heart is still deceitful and desperately sick. As Jeremiah 17 and verse 10 tells us that it is, or pardon me, verse 9 tells us that it is outside of and apart from Christ. What has transpired then in these cases is merely a superficial response of an unchanged heart to the gospel. It will not last through the assaults of the devil, the birds who come to steal away the seed. It will not last through the time of testing because it has no root. Like those little seedlings that spring up, but there's no root. They can't stand the heat of the day. It will not last amidst the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. Those things will choke it out. There is such a thing as making a response to the gospel, which doesn't stem from a changed heart. And yet there is such a thing as hearing the word and holding it fast in an honest and good heart and bearing fruit with patience. As Jesus teaches us in his explanation of the parable of the sower. It is certainly possible to have been born again. Born of God. As John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 put it. It is possible to have been made alive together with Christ. As Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5 puts it. Of course we believe that God does change hearts. God does draw people to faith in Christ Jesus. Though everyone is a sinner, not everyone is a hypocrite. Some are sincere in their faith and trust in Christ. That faith and that trust come from, stem from, are a result of a changed heart. Not only has God loved the world and made a plan to save sinners. Not only has the Son of God come to live and to die and to rise for sinners. But there are three persons in the Trinity. And there is a work in salvation. Particularly, peculiarly ascribed to the Spirit. Which is to give that new birth. To draw. To quicken. 
in the language of older theologians. The Holy Spirit has changed hearts throughout the history of God's people. And the Holy Spirit is still in the business of changing hearts. Some certainly have been changed by God. Some certainly are sincere in their faith. The point in this passage before us today, we're going to talk more about the new birth in weeks ahead. But the point in this passage before us today is simply that Jesus knows the difference between those whose faith is sincere and those whose faith isn't. Jesus knows what is in man. Not only does God know your heart, His Son, who was with God, and who was God, the Word became flesh. He knows your heart. The people in this passage professed to believe in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Does Jesus believe in you? I'm not asking whether or not you're perfect. We all know that we aren't. I'm asking you to consider soberly whether or not you're sincere. The difference here isn't between perfection and imperfection. The difference is between imperfection and insincerity. Have you made a wholehearted response to Christ and His Gospel? Have you made a life-changing response to Christ and His Gospel? Are your heart motivations any different now? We talked about those who used to be afraid of the Pharisees before they met Jesus, and they're still afraid of the Pharisees. Those who didn't want to get put out of the synagogue before they met Jesus, and they still don't want to get put out of the synagogue. Those who love the glory that came from man, that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, before they met Jesus. And they still do. They didn't change. Have you changed? Have you put your hand to the plow and sang with the chorus of all genuine saints since time immemorial? No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me. The cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Or is Jesus and all that goes with Him, the Gospel, Church, Christianity, a matter of culture, family tradition, convenience, 
reputation, emotion, impulse, or whatever else? Is it simply that it would be harder, more trouble, more inconvenience to you to repudiate Christ than to keep up the facade? Are you prepared to persevere through the devil's attempts to steal away the word, the seed from the path? Are you prepared to persevere through times of testing? Are you prepared amidst the cares and riches and pleasures of life to count all things as loss? For the sake of Christ. Nothing compares. Or are you gone from Christ. Mentally and in your affections. As soon as the church ends. What difference is there between that. And the birds coming and stealing the seed. From the path. As soon as you close your Bible. After your devotions in the morning, you're gone from Christ mentally and in your affections. What is the difference? Tell me. What is the difference between that and the birds coming and stealing the seed from the path? Are you gone from Christ the moment you're tested? When it's convenient to follow Christ, you follow Christ. And when it's not, you don't. Maybe you have to take a stand, a principled stand in front of other people for something that you profess to believe. Maybe your convictions create an inconvenient situation in your life. Maybe they conflict with Maybe it causes, maybe the cause of Christ conflicts with other priorities in your life. And something important to you has to go. Many ways that we can be tested. Are you there when it's all good, but then when troubles hit the fan, so to speak? Your path wanders from Christ? Do the cares and riches and pleasures of life testify to you of Christ's goodness and fullness? So we've talked about the dispensary communicative fullness of Christ. In Colossians 1, Christ is full in order that He might fill His people. Do the cares and riches and pleasures of life, if Christ in His fullness have, has poured them on you, do they testify to you of the fullness of Christ and the goodness of Christ such that you receive them with a thankful and worshipful heart? Or are they competing affections? Do the cares and riches and pleasures of life become things that choke out your interest in Christ? Become more important to you than Christ Jesus 
Do they eclipse Him? I have a couple of lamps in my office. And when I wake up before the sunrise and I turn them on, they seem to brighten my office. But then the sun rises and sometimes I forget them on. I forget that they're even on because they basically make no difference once the sunlight's streaming in the room. The sunlight eclipses the light from the lamps. Do the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life eclipse the presence of Christ in your life, the goodness of Christ, the sweetness of Christ, such that you forget that He's even there? Or worse, do you envision Christ as a servant in your life, tasked with bringing you those things? Have you bought into some soft form of the prosperity gospel? That the function of Christ in your life is to bring you the cares and the riches and the pleasures. Satan said to the Lord, Does Job fear you for no reason? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. The book of Job is among other things a vindication of Job's sincerity. Take it all away and Job would say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you worship God for superficial reasons? Would Satan be right if he said, This one just worships you because of what you give him, because of what you give her, what you have done for her? Take it all away, and she will curse you to your face. Is that true of you? Or would you bow and worship alongside Job, as it were, if God stripped every lesser motivation away? If He took all but Himself away, would you worship still? The passage before us today, John chapter 2, 23 to 25 indicates to us that Jesus knows the answer to these questions. Jesus knows the answer to these questions. God knows your heart. Jesus knows your heart. You profess to believe in Jesus, but does Jesus believe in you? You ought not to gloss too quickly over this question. Soberly consider your state before God. You're going to see sin when you look inside. You're going to see imperfection, unholiness, 
you're going to see even a measure of insincerity. You're going to think of times when you've done something for a superficial reason. Or times when you've allowed a superficial thing to keep you from doing that which you ought to in obedience to God. There's going to be some insincerity there. Thank God, as we sang just before the sermon, my righteousness is not in me. Not in me. Our sincere faith, if there is sincere faith in there, even our sincere faith is not the grounds of our justification before God. Realize that? We can never be so sincere, so well-meaning, that God counts our sincerity and our intentions as our righteousness before Him. My righteousness is Jesus' life, we sang. He kept the law for us. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. The debt that I owed because of my imperfection, because of my insincerity, my debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him. And He alone can give me rest. In urging you to consider the sincerity of your faith, in, or, in urging you to consider whether or not there has been a heart change in your life or whether you worship God or profess to worship God because of superficial motives, whether there is a deep-seated confidence, rest in Christ, trust in Christ, or whether there is merely a superficial acknowledgement of Christ, merely an intellectual assent to who He is without a heartfelt reliance on Him. The reason that I'm urging you to look in and see as best as you can what's there in your heart is not so that you can look inside and see whether you can find justifying righteousness in there or not. Whether you can find grounds for God to accept you or not. That's not why I'm urging you to look in. For justifying righteousness, we need to look outside of ourselves. Upward to the right hand of God, where He who was crucified now sits, having risen and ascended, waiting till all His enemies shall be made His footstool. That's where we need to look for justifying righteousness. Christ and Christ alone. His life. The righteousness that you should have offered up to God but didn't. His death. The only sufficient propitiation for your sins. The only way that the wrath of God would be turned away from you is the death of Jesus Christ. So I'm not urging you to look inside to find grounds in yourself for your own justification. I'm urging you to look inside as a diagnostic tool 
to know whether it is that you believe savingly in Christ Jesus. Whether you believe in the way that John speaks of belief in John chapter 1. Believing in His name and becoming children of God. Born of God. Having been born again, as we'll talk about as we get to John chapter 3. As he talks about at the end of his gospel, these things are written so that you may believe. Whether you believe like that, I want you to diagnose. Or whether you believe like the people in John 8 believed and yet sought to kill Jesus and said that he was born of sexual immorality. Or whether you believe like those in John chapter 12, but nothing really changed and they were still afraid of the Pharisees and being put out of the synagogue, and so on and so forth. You see, John uses belief in two different ways. And it's a tool, a literary device to help us think carefully about what is belief. Do you believe like this or do you believe like that? I want you, as best as you can, to look inside, not so you can find justifying righteousness in yourself, but so that you can know in which manner you believe. Are you a true believer or are you a false believer? Jesus knows. Jesus knows what is in man. When you do this, as you go through this process, Perhaps this afternoon, perhaps this week, perhaps this will put you into a season of thinking soberly about these things. Perhaps you're already in a season of thinking soberly about these things. It may not happen overnight. You may not resolve this issue quickly. But if in the end you conclude that you are sincere though imperfect, that there has been a heart change, that you really do love the Lord, that you really do want to be free from sin, that you really do want to worship, that you really are trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Thank God for the work of grace in your heart. Thank God for that quickening ray which caused the dungeon to flame with light. Which caused you to rise, to go forth, and to follow Him. Thank God for that. If you realize that the end of this self-examination that you're actually not among the number of God's people that your faith is insincere superficial come to Christ He will have you as John chapter 6 verse 37 says or as Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 37 whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The point of exposing your hypocrisy and insincerity 
isn't to drive you from Christ. It's not to, it's not to beat you up and send you home like never come back in this church again. You hypocrite. That's not the point. You understand? It's not to drive you from Christ. It's not to discourage you and send you from here hopeless. The point of saying that Jesus knows your heart. That you might be able to fool me. That you might be able to fool the congregation. That you might be able to fool the nation. You might be able to have a lifelong reputation as a Christian. But come to the realization in the end that Jesus knew you were a false believer. The point of that isn't to discourage you, to send you away hopeless and to drive you from Christ. The point of that is to tell you now. So that you can remedy it. So that the issue can be addressed. Didn't Jesus do this over and again with people who came to him? In most of our churches, we would take the inquirers who came to Jesus with questions and we would encourage them and, you know, pat them on the back and and just talk about how they're seekers and they're so close to the kingdom and so on and so forth. But Jesus, doesn't he so often give them hard sayings and send them away to think about it? One thing you lack. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Said to him, one thing you lack. And we read that the man went away sad. You know why Jesus did that? Not because he didn't love him. But because he did love him. He sent him away sad. So that he could think about what Jesus had said. And address the problem. That he wasn't as righteous as he thought he was. Jesus did that over and over again. I'll follow you wherever you go. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You'd almost think Jesus didn't want followers. But the point... Of Jesus doing these things and saying these things wasn't so that people wouldn't follow. It was so that they actually would follow. Actually follow. The way that Jesus defines following. So not so that they wouldn't become Christians, but so that they actually would become Christians. in that same spirit that I tell you today Jesus knows your heart consider as best as you can consider your own motivations consider your own response to the gospel it's imperfect for sure at times it's even going to be insincere but has your response to the gospel been accompanied by a real, genuine change. A sincere reorientation of your heart toward Christ Jesus.
You profess to believe in Jesus. But does Jesus believe in you? Think on it. And as I said, if you come to find that your faith is insincere, that you have been a hypocrite, the response should not be that you stay away or run further from Christ, but that you would come to Him for the first time savingly,